Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. He says this right here. This is well documented among historians. This is historical fact that slaves did develop skills while they were enslaved and then used those skills as blacksmiths, uh, as in agriculture, uh, tailoring uh, in the shipping business to then use to benefit themselves and their families once they were freed. That's not controversial. That's uh, Jesse Waters, the new uh, Tucker Carlson over there at Fox, uh, expounding on the virtues of slavery uh, for the enslaved people, uh, which is now a controversy, Mike Murphy, because of what the state of Florida is, the guidance the state of Florida is giving to schools there. And I wanted to play it, brother, because I wanted to take the opportunity as a Jew, to thank the Pharaoh for the experience he gave my forefathers in building the pyramids, laid the foundation for them to become architects and construction uh, magnates uh, later in future generations. So isn't that, isn't that great? Aren't we lucky? Yeah, no, it's totally applicable. And there's more to thank because after that stonemasonry work, right to dental school for your people and accounting school. <laughs> it made total sense. I mean, we Irish, if it wasn't for the British monarchy, how would we know how to dig a potato when you're we starving? So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, this 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 unites all of us, I think, because Jesse <laughs> Walters is a, is a united uniter. And I guess uh, uh, Governor DeSantis had a few uh, maybe weaselly if, if uh, he was trying to kind of half defend him and move on. We'll get to him later, but to decipher the great pageant of democracy we have today, <laughs> the great Bob Costa from CBS, uh, an author and uh, all things political savant. Great to have you, brother. Welcome to uh, welcome to Hacks. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. You know, Bob is uniquely qualified to be with us, not just co-author of the brilliant uh, Peril with Bob Woodward, New York Times number one bestseller, but he's one of our few guests who actually slums every week and listens to the Hacks on Tap podcast. So this is uh, it's a double treat. But more than that, he actually goes out and listens to voters, which yeah. uh, is a Poor dying bastard. art. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a dying art. So- Murphy, you wanted to get some stuff off your chest here. Uh, <laughs> let's get it off right, right no, at the top. No, no, I just tuned into the DNC hour last week during my my absence uh, with you and Gibbsy, uh, and uh, I, I I had Fox record it all for the day after the uh, Iowa caucus. Look, I, I'm not certain that's Jeff Fox, not Fox. Yeah, Jeff News. Fox, yeah, our yeah. crack engineer. Yeah, right. Who, who luckily you know sent me the text. They're at it again, so I was able to tune in. And but anyway. I don't know who is going to win. I mean, I'm not Kreskin. Uh, 
But I think the cha- I think the ingredients are all there for Trump to lose Iowa, and New Hampshire, and lose the nomination. So I think, and I know I'm out on a limb here, but last time I was out on a limb was in 2008 when there was an inevitable candidate leading all the national primary polls by 15 points until Iowa named Hillary Clinton. You remember those days? I thought it was 2016 when you're out on a limb, but we'll uh, let. <laughs> well, that... I'm always out on a limb. I'm the, I'm the owl of American politics. But bottom line is. I think if you believe the national polling averages right now, which I don't because I'm a I'm a, a apostle for the Milk Wurtzman rule of don't pay a lot of attention to national primary uh, polls until the first contest. Uh, so I am dubious. I see Trump fatigue at a record level. I see political entrepreneurs running against him. And, and I'll give you, again, even the early state polls at this time, by the way, on the last Republican primary had uh, Scott Walker and Ron, Rand Paul winning. Uh, the latest Iowa data, University, excuse me, latest New Hampshire data, University of New Hampshire, now that people have been up on television and they're starting, it's the beginning of getting known. It'll be at the end of the year when everything surges. Uh, you know, Trump's down to 37 and DeSantis is tripping down. Tim Scott is almost tied with DeSantis for second in private polling, I'm seeing. Give him another month. They're spending real money. They've got real money. So my point is, in those two places, Trump is showing more weakness. He isn't nationally. But I believe these national pre-the-first-contest polls are basically uh, a noise meter for what's on cable TV that week. And it's been driving DeSantis down because he's been a pretty appalling candidate. By the way, we should probably send out one word of uh, – we, we heard this yeah. morning that Governor Sanders was in a car wreck. Luckily and thankfully, nobody was hurt. Uh, the rumor is he was trying to mow down his campaign staff who he saw crossing the street because he's had a had a bumpy time. But seriously, we're we're happy nobody was yeah, hurt. Yeah, we, we are. And as an homage to the governor, uh, Bob Costas is actually speaking to us from his car uh, <laughs> right now. Costa, I, I don't know what's going to happen either. And I think anybody, this is such uncharted waters that we're in. But now there are two new polls this week from Fox News uh, Business that had Trump leading in Iowa 46 to 16 for DeSantis to 11 for Scott in South Carolina, 48 to 14 for Haley to 13 for DeSantis to 10 for Scott. What's the precedent for people having these kinds of leads and then uh, and then losing those uh, contests? I can't think of a recent example in those states, this is not national polling. These are state polls. At this point, I don't see any precedent for anyone catching up or knocking off a front runner with those kind of numbers. But we're in an unprecedented moment because we just don't know how the January 6th indictment on a federal level, should it come, and the Georgia indictment, as expected to come in August, will play out politically. I'm not saying they're going to in any way unravel Trump's grip on the base, but they do present for his rivals some kind of soft underbelly, maybe not even for DeSantis or Scott to take the shot, but for someone like Chris Christie to step in at a debate, whether Trump shows up or not, and start to peel away some of that support or at least raise questions. At this point, though, having traveled again and again to these early states in the last few months, Trump is by far in a commanding position over everybody else. But there are lingering questions about whether he could win. And so this electability question keeps popping up from DeSantis, from others. Yeah, you know, the uh, one of the questions that was asked in these two polls, and also one in the national poll that YouGov did last week was, uh, who would be the strongest candidate? 
who who would be, who had the best chance to win in all of those polls in the national poll and in the Iowa poll and in the South Carolina poll uh, a majority said Trump uh that, and just to just by contrast and we talked about this last week um in the democratic uh, poll in the democratic portion of the poll in other words how democrats reacted to uh to Biden uh, he was far lower than Trump. Thirty-nine percent said they thought he would be the strongest candidate. So it's it's not like Republicans, Mike, are saying uh, Trump Trump is a weak candidate. They they think by far he's the strongest candidate. They have now, you know. Yeah, but it's an immature market now. They 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 haven't tasted the other. They're just starting to. So we just got to let it cook. And, and you know how logarithmatic the primary is, or the caucus in in Iowa. We, we you know the real action is going to start after September. And you know we'll be having this argument again with I think much better data uh, in October and December. So tune in everybody. But but right look at the election held tomorrow. Trump's the nominee. I agree, but it isn't. So there's going to be a process here and. It, it, the, the Trump fatigue is out there, man. I'm hearing it all the time. You have to remember how tribal Republicans are. We, we don't go sound like the New York Times complaining about Trump publicly. This is, this is private business. Maybe it's time for somebody new. And the somebody news are only in the second inning of playing baseball. We, we just got to see. Now, I will say, I don't see a superstar in the field. I think they could all be performing better. I'm disappointed in Burgum. I think Scott's pretty good. The debate might be great for him. I don't. One thing last week too, I'm not sure I agree with is, if I were Trump, I kind of wouldn't want to be there. On the other hand, if I'm there, it's just me and Christie fighting, and I win that fight in the Republican primary. Now, if by not being there, I give DeSantis room to stumble, and I give Scott room to turn on the charisma and maybe get something going. So I think it's more of a mixed decision for Trump. But let's have that debate. We'll review it. And we'll see if the race starts shaking up in those early states in September. If it doesn't, you're, you're going to be right. Conventional wisdom will rule here. It'll be Trump. But I'm still dubious. I don't think conventional wisdom applies because it can, because there's nothing conventional uh, about this. I mean, the question is, Costa, you, you mentioned these next two indictments. One of the ro- running sagas of the Trump you know, years has been the number of times that we've all said, well, he'll never get away with that. He'll never get away with that. And he has set up this construct, and we've talked about it here before, where each indictment is an insignia of his authenticity as a an enemy of the elites, an enemy of the deep state. And the first two indictments haven't dinged him. These ones coming up are Obviously, they go to the heart of the matter of subverting the election. But is there? I'm just trying to figure out if there's a reason to believe that they're going to have a different effect, or whether the aggregation of these things will cause a, a, a weakening. I don't have any expectation, based on my reporting, that they're going to change the dynamic of the race. And this is all playing out as House Republicans on Capitol Hill are talking about Hunter Biden day in, day out, and it's giving the Trump campaign and Trump himself this ability to make a false equivalence that, oh, Hunter's not being prosecuted and Trump's being persecuted by a political justice department. And this resonates with voters I encounter on the campaign trail. Uh, And the other thing that Trump people see behind the scenes is no one's really willing to take him on. I mean, DeSantis will kind of nudge at him on the right and they see Christie as a, a flawed person. I mean, it was up until Jan- November 2020, Christie was in debate prep with Trump catching COVID. 
And so it's not like this is someone who stands as this voice who's been in the wilderness for years making a moral case against Trump. Right. It's been the greatest pivot uh, uh, we've ever seen in politics from wanting to be Trump's chief of staff, wanting to be his right hand in government to his biggest critic. It's emotionally satisfying, but physics be damned. He managed to to do it at light speed. But let's hear Nikki Haley for a minute. We have a little sound on this because she's creeping out of the cave to attack a little. Well, let's do Haley and then let's do Scott, because this underscores Bob's point about the timidity with which these opponents are approaching Trump. I have said it very clearly that we need a new generational leader. We've got to leave this negativity behind. Are there problems in our justice? Would you support him if he gets the nomination? I would support him because I am not going to have a President Kamala Harris. We can't afford that. That is not going to happen. So that's Nikki Haley. Uh, And this is sort of the common theme among Republicans. Tim Scott was asked about the the latest pending indictment on January 6th, and this is what he said. I hold the folks who broke into the Capitol with ill will in their hearts, destroying property, responsible for their actions. I don't hold the former president who didn't show up at the Capitol and threatened my life as responsible. So from my perspective, 99% of the folks who showed up at the Capitol we're there to exercise their First Amendment rights. So everybody's sort of tiptoeing around here. Yeah, you know, Trump may be, he may be guilty of uh, serious crimes, but he's better than Kamala Harris. Yeah, you know, January 6th, he really did, he, he wasn't responsible. Now, you guys, the indictment is pretty clearly not going to charge him with inciting that riot. It's going to charge him with plotting for months to overturn the election. How long can Republicans sort of do this dance about Trump? Until the general election, and then they still have to be careful. Remember, being anti-Trump loses you the primary because then you've turned on the tribe. Being moved beyond Trump, he can't win, may nominate you. And they know that. They know that. I mean, come on. This is hacks on tap, not Gandhi on tap. These folks are saying what they got to say That's to survive next, the, by the, the way, electorate. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're both getting, by the way, we're spinning some cloth to make our, our outfits. If I could get the lotus position, we'd do that one, yeah. too. I, I just yeah, no, can't do it. But we're, we're bringing a block and tackle. We're going to get you into it. Uh, but but the thing is there, you know, it was like the old Democrat dance on gay marriage. You know, back when the Democrats were saying they were against gay marriage, I think in their heart, most of them weren't. But they were worried about certain voters and, and living through a primary. That, that's what's happening here. I don't love it. You know, I'd love it if they all sound like Christie, except in the end, I wouldn't love it because that'll nominate Trump. They're working around the tribal loyalty thing until they are free to be themselves. And that, that while troubling, is not new in presidential primary politics. You know, I know Mitt Romney wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed yeah. yes. saying, yeah. don't, li- don't listen to, uh, don't- donors don't have that much influence. So I hesitate to share this anecdote, but I was talking to some sources who have been out in Aspen, Colorado in recent days for the Republican Governors Association meeting. And who shows up at the RGA to have some private side meetings, dinner meetings? Senator Tim Scott. And he's going around with Bill Haslam, the former Tennessee governor, Cory Gardner, the former Colorado go- uh, senator. And he's having meetings and all these donors are getting to know Senator Scott. And I've covered Scott since he was in the House. And the big question I have about Scott and about Haley is, do they have the political talent the will to take on Trump when they actually get that face-to-face action, even if they tiptoe for months and all the chips fall their way. The timidity 
I've covered Donald Trump for a very long time. It's like stepping into hellfire when you take him on. I mean, <laughs> he, he will point. go to, he will take you to the extreme beyond just nicknames. He'll go after your family. He'll raise questions about whether family members committed assassination against a president. He'll question a whole load of your personal history. And if, if not him, he'll have his allies do it. And if they're not getting the political muscles ready for that eventual fight, it's a, it, but when they're out in Aspen, a lot of these donor sources are telling me that they like Scott, but his answer on January 6th is how he is privately too. He really believes there's an implosion that's possible. He doesn't say that, but there's kind of an Im- implication that a Trump implosion is possible. And when that happens, wouldn't I be a perfect profiled candidate with my message, my history in the House to be your nominee? Let's work together. I can win Iowa with a religious conservative message in the same way Huckabee did and Santorum did. I'm kind of a Rick Santorum without the 2006 loss and the Southern uh, history and background. And if I win Iowa and let's say Christie knocks off Trump a little bit in North New Hampshire and maybe DeSantis does well, then I can come into my home state and be positioned for Super Tuesday. But that's... That still comes down back to the question, though. Do you really have what it takes to take on Trump when yeah, he directs all enough. of his ire at you? What bothers me most about Scott is that he feels weak to me. I don't think he needs World War III uh, with Trump, but we got to see some strength. And you're right. If it works, and by the way, he's making a huge miscalculation. If he does the President Huckabee move in Iowa, uh, then he could blow New Hampshire. You got to beat one, too. And that's how you solve the Romney problem, coalescing the donor support. This will be different in 16. The donors are going to stampede to somebody if they beat Trump in Iowa and are viable outside of Iowa. So Scott's got to really watch that formula. And you're right. He has to show some strength. That's the biggest weakness I'm seeing right now. In the end, you got to out-alpha Trump. There has to be a moment. The, one of the interesting things about that Fox poll in Iowa last week was Trump was getting about half the evangelical vote, and uh, which is obviously something that Scott is counting on. And uh, DeSantis was getting about 20 percent. I think Scott was getting about 12 or 13 percent. The thing that stands in the way uh, of him becoming the Huckabee or the Santorum of this caucus is there are a lot of people competing for the same base. Uh, you know, Pence, by the way, was at 4% among evangelical voters, which would have been unthinkable uh, some time ago. But his, you know, he is, he, you know, and that's a reflection of Trump's strength uh, with those voters. And Pence's weakness, because in their view, Pence has crossed the traitor line. So Pence is over. Pence might not even make the debate stage. Yeah, exactly. And, he, and if he doesn't, the question is, does he stay in the race? I mean, if I mean, the, the fact is, if you don't make the debate stage, that is a certification of irrelevancy. And I think it's very high. You saw how anemic his fundraising was before. I mean, in this last report, how are you going to raise money when you aren't even on the debate stage? Uh, I think it's really tough for him. But the thing we haven't discussed, you guys, is the guy who was for months and months and months and still uh, presents himself as the uh, one and only viable challenger to Trump, and that's DeSantis who, after peaking as the flavor of the fall, has done nothing but sink in this race. Yeah, no, no. It's, it, they're now on their third shakeup or second. I can't count them. 
his original bubble was driven a little by the normal thing I think drives a lot of these early, early national polls, the noise meter from cable TV. But he's failing that candidate test in every way. Now, on the ground in Iowa, he's doing a little better. But there are fundamental candidate problems there. There are fundamental campaign problems. And it becomes a self-fulfilling deal when you got Tim Scott showing up, stealing all your donors uh, with some success, I hear. That is... Uh, that is that's like a, a campaign, a, a real poll right there. So I don't know. I actually have a different theory on DeSantis. I don't think it's a fundamental candidate problem. I knew him in the House. Look, I've covered a thousand politicians who don't have much of a personality, can be can seem grim on the campaign trail. I think there's a problem with understanding what it takes to run for president in 2023 in this media environment. Because when I covered DeSantis as governor, he has an entire Florida press corps at his that can call to cover whatever he wants to do. And when you run for president, the Trump method really does work, even if you can't stand Trump, which is you can't, you have to create news, but sometimes you have to dive into the news. And Trump was yeah. brilliant when I covered him in 2016. He would see a wave in the news cycle, catch it, run it, redirect it. But DeSantis has this old school way of thinking he can have a message, have an ad, have a, a talking point, and the media and the social media infrastructure are somehow going to pick up on it. But that's not how it works. The, the, the news is what it is, and you either jump into it or not. And he's kind of out of the news. Mm. Well, the only news is process news about his campaign melting down. Right, right. There's no DeSantis news. I, I have three points on DeSantis. Uh, one is, uh, and you know, these are not uh, new, but uh, the question has always been, uh, can you win by being the new and improved MAGA guy, the new and improved Trump, the Trump without crazy. The fact is that as in a choice between uh, Trump and a new and improved Trump, like new Coke is losing uh, here. People don't want him. Number two. That, this, that would mean Trump is the real thing just for Coke analogies. Yeah. To his supporters, I think he is. Yeah, no, I agree. Dime store, new deal. Yeah. And I think he's more than, and we've talked about this before, the whatever Trump is to his supporters, he's not a politician. He's the leader of a movement. You know, right. he's a businessman. He's not a politician. He's a guy who says what he thinks. DeSantis is coming across, even though he's saying controversial things, of his timidity about dealing with the news media and his handling of Trump, frankly, uh, is he, he is coming across as a politician and he is not winning over uh, the base, but he is driving some others uh uh, away from him. The second thing is, uh, and this is part of the timidity thing, you know, his big thrust against Trump was he's a loser. This goes to your point, Mike. He's a loser. We can't afford to lose anymore. He's a loser. But he won't say that he lost. <laughs> I mean, uh, he is afraid to say he lost the last election because he doesn't want to alienate his base. So you can't have it both ways. Right, right. No, no. It's self-defeating. It's, it's... Uh, and the third is, uh, just let me make my last point, and yeah. I'm sorry for the filibuster, but Bob, I disagree with you on one point. I've covered and I've been involved in presidential politics for a long, long time since, I hate to say, I'm not going to use this since the before you were born thing, but probably pretty close. Well, David, your book cover says 40 years in politics, so you're not shy about saying. Yeah, no, my book is, and my book is uh, six years or something old now, maybe more, eight years. So you're getting the point here. Here's the thing. Presidential politics is 
different. People really do judge you. They look at you differently. They look at you as a whole person, especially when you go into these early states and people are are, are talking to you. He is a strange guy. He is not a, he is not accessible. He is not warm. He'd rather uh, talk about some uh, point of policy than ask you uh, about your family. Uh, he, he is just not an accessible guy. And you can say, well, look at Trump. But Trump's an entertainer, okay? Trump is good at entertaining the crowd and, and you know, playing in the moment and so on. Uh, so, I mean, I think all of those things, this is why, Murphy, I think both of us have been skeptical about DeSantis from Jump Street. I agree with all that. I, I thought the media hit him a little too hard and he had the ability to improve, but that's what I haven't seen. And I'll just echo on all this process stuff about, oh, the campaign's a disaster, yada, yada, yada. That is doubly hard for him to one of your 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 14 Wilsonian points. The 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 thing is, they'll be available online, by the way. But if the you know, and then I'll go quote Clemenceau. My God, Jesus Christ, only had ten. So, <laughs> but but back to the the thing. If the real kryptonite for Trump is exhaustion, he's a loser. My God, he's the one guy that that you know, old man Biden can beat. Then DeSantis has to look like a winner which means the press is talking about your machine. And they've tried that with their their super PAC stuff about the world's biggest field organization. But they have to look like the fine-tuned machine to reinforce that contrast, particularly in the donor world. But it trickers, trickles down the voters, which is, wow, this guy's a superstar. He can be – and that competitive advantage, uh, is, he squandered it away because the Keystone Cops perception of the campaign, a lot of it driven by some of these, in my view, easy-to-prevent stumbles. Also, and I, I tweeted this and got a little push back and it's a fair argument but i i was not a big andrew gillum fan the guy he beat to be governor he beat him closely it was a very tight race but he ran very left for florida uh eventually collapsed in the end got in ethics trouble which he's been cleared of over years desantis has never had a really tough statewide race charlie christ was a tier b opponent so some of the things you learn going through that uh, in, a, in a competitive state would be useful. Now, it's also true that Tim Scott's never had a particularly tough race. Nikki Haley never had a particularly tough race. Christie, to some extent, has, but he's already he's kind of wearing the dynamite vest for the primary electorate. But I, I think it's really caught up to DeSantis. I don't think he was ready for the national stage, to echo what you said. Is there one more comeback left in him? Maybe, but boy, there are many lives into that cat. I mean, we should point out, like, if this were a conventional year, there have been people who've been counted out before Kerry, right, uh, right. Uh, McCain, but they were different personalities. Uh, you know, Kerry had a great personal story to tell, and he told it in Iowa to great effect. I mean, Biden. Yeah. Well. I mean, Biden had that relationship with African-American voters when it went south. It was all about him. Biden certainly came back, but it's possible to come back. But the question is, does he have have it to come back? All right. We're going to leave for a minute to pay the power bill, and then we'll be right back. Bob Murphy mentioned the debate earlier on August 23rd uh, in Milwaukee. What what is your reporting and what is your sense of whether Trump shows up there? Yeah, I think 
Trump's leaning against it at this moment, but every day I talk to his inner circle, they say, well, he could still show up. He, he's going to put his finger in the air, see the wins, even the day of. Dave Bossy, who's running the debate for Ronna McDaniel at the RNC, is a former Trump deputy campaign manager, longtime Trump friend, going back years, over a decade or two. Fixed. And they're begging Trump to show up to make this yeah. debate relevant. They're even going to visit him and saying, please come. But he's not making any promises, even to people he's known for a long time, because he's just going to make a calculation the day of. And I think on DeSantis, it's, I'm not even watching DeSantis at the debate so much, though I think some of the others are going to try to feast on him if Trump doesn't show up. Sure. But I think I think the big thing to watch with DeSantis, it's a little processy, but what happens to Jeff Rowe, who ran Cruz? Jeff Rowe's now at the Super PAC. There's been talk for a long time that if Genera Peck, who's DeSantis's campaign manager, uh, somehow leaves or is layered or put out to pasture a little bit, that does Rowe leave the Super PAC for DeSantis and come over at some point and start running things? because. At, at this point, when I talk to DeSantis donors, there's a sense that if you, even if they love him and are fans and they say they, they poo-poo any talk of him being antisocial, there's a sense that he doesn't have a killer at his side. He's listening to a very, very tight inner circle along with his family, especially his wife. And uh, they, they're looking for someone like Roe, if not Roe, to come in, a Murphy and Axelrod type, to, to just say, look. Everybody who's his friend and we he knows him from Florida, that's nice, but you're now not in part of the decision-making process. He's going to do A, B, and C only from now on through me. And mm -hmm. they worry if that doesn't happen, maybe this whole thing doesn't happen. The question is whether he would tolerate that. The, I mean, his habit has been to run his own operation with his wife. And uh, exactly. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, that's what I read. That's what I hear from people. I mean, Jeff is a strong personality and will he, would he tolerate that? That's a, that's a big question. It's funny. I know some of these folks and Jeff's a good consultant. Uh, David's exactly right. Would he put? Because the worst thing in our racket is when you have responsibility but no authority. What I hear and have heard for eight months in consultant world, the bar talk, and I think Bob, you're well sourced. You've probably heard some of this too. Is that the governor and his wife Casey don't like consultants? They they're suspicious of it, you know, and so that's part of the reason for the dysfunction here. And so for a, a big consultant like. Row to show up. And by the way, when you go over, there's some legal things. There's a cooling on, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he could. Um, culturally, he can bark a few orders. But what I think he knows, because he's a savvy guy about this kind of stuff, is if everything doesn't turn around in 17 days, uh, boom, then he's the next casualty. So I don't know. I don't know if he'd take that deal. And I don't know from his point of view if he should. Costa, you said something that. Bossy and, and the and Rana, they want Trump to show up to make the debate relevant. If you're ahead by 30 points, why do you want to make the debate relevant? I don't think he shows up at this point. And the sense in Trump's inner circle is that if he doesn't show up for the first debate, he's not showing up for any of the debates. And he just doesn't feel a need at this point. If I had to bet two cents, he doesn't show at all. And he's going to do something with Tucker Carlson on Twitter or some town hall. There's been talk right. of different networks that maybe he does a town hall with a different network, a broadcast network. Maybe he does something with Tucker Carlson. Maybe he does both, has a rally. Because he's being told by some of his longtime pals that if this debate dies on the stalk and that it just kind of is deprived of oxygen, then they're all dead. 
because they have no bounce. They have no ability mm. to have fundraising and you'll you'll get a three to four million, maybe five on Fox watching it, but it won't be a major television event. I'm contrarian on this. I think there's a strong case for Trump to go because it'll turn into a blowhard fight between Trump and Christie, and that will not be so bad for Trump because uh, I think Trump will alpha it up. If he doesn't go, I don't think the big – Tim Scott's not going anywhere. He's got the best hard-dollar hard money situation now. DeSantis may implode and go away, but uh, I, I think if he's not there, he gives somebody else the shot at a star-making turn. And there's some risk for that in Trump. So I think it's much more of a 50-50 thing. And, of course, Trump's ego will want to go because it is weak not to show up. I think the argument, Mike, is that if he doesn't show up, that, yes, everybody will take shots at him and there'll be comments about him not having the guts to show up and all this stuff, mostly from Christie. But I, I think that then, because you have to fill time and it's not interesting, they will start carving on DeSantis. Well, sure. That's that's good for Trump. Everybody who's behind DeSantis is going to shoot at the next guy in line. Yeah, yeah. But I, in the end, if this is a star-making moment for Nikki Haley, who desperately needs one, or Tim Scott, net-net uh, at the end, Trump has a stronger foil. So I, I don't. I don't see the easy win for Trump by going and doing a rally somewhere. I don't, I think if I were him, I would view it as an opportunity to further erode DeSantis and create a lot of sort of confusion in the in the, in the race. You know, I wonder if that moment even happens though, because think of the timing: August twenty third. Fonnie Willis is moving. Everyone is whispering that she's going to move sometime in mid to late August on mm-hmm. a Trump indictment. The Atlanta prosecutor, yeah. In the Atlanta prosecutor, Fulton County, Georgia, looking into the pressure on election officials. And then you got Jack Smith likely to move within the next week or two. Right. And so how is every question not about Trump in January 6th? Because if I'm moderating that debate, I want them all on the record. And where do right. you stand on January 6th? Well, you know, if you're moderating that debate, though, you can only ask these questions so much. You can't do an True. hour of Trump. True. So I think that that will be the first question. And, you know, and they will all punish Trump. Uh, for not being there by, you know, in some form or fashion, some with less uh, verve than uh, than Christie. But then they're going to have to move on. But th- they've got acts. I mean, Nikki Haley is not bad. Scott's not bad. They got stuff to talk about to grow. And again, we don't have to settle this race on Labor Day. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the beginning of the beginning in voter world. And, and on the indictment stuff, yeah, it's big, but the po- political grip of the indictment news, in my view, declines by about 25% for every 150 miles you get away from D.C. Uh, the meat and potato yeah. stuff will be big. The Biden bashing will be big. There's a huge market for that. If somebody can be at that debate, even with lower ratings, blah, blah, and look like a, a, a Biden-beating younger winner, that is going to help him. And if Trump's not there, he opens that pathway for somebody. On the question of these indictments, you know, the the judge in Florida now scheduled, like I think, May 20th for the start of this trial. I'm trying to um, I think, you guys, imagine uh, what it would be like if Trump were the nominee. Are you really going to have a trial uh, in the middle of May as you approach the Republican convention? I mean, I think, boy, I, I, I'm becoming less and less convinced that these trials are going to happen at these federal trials are going to happen uh, before the election. I think Smith is trying, but I don't know that that's going to happen. 
I mean, I just don't see how. What? How do you do that? It's two separate questions, right? Does a trial happen on classified records before the election? That, I think, is up for debate because Judge Eileen Cannon is very much listening to the Trump lawyer's arguments. And what's the Trump lawyer's argument every day? Delay, delay, delay. Mm -hmm. And the classified records is complicated because the discovery process could be extended because of all the the material and who has review rights. And that's complicated. I think Judge Eileen Cannon's Florida federal trial could be pushed until after the election. But the the big variable right now is... If Jack Smith in the next week or two moves forward with a January 6th indictment, it's going to be, you know, in Prettyman Courthouse, in Federal Courthouse in Washington. And if the judge selection in D.C. Federal Court is someone who moves fast and is more aligned with the Justice Department's perspective on this, you could have a records case that's fizzling down in Florida, but a January 6th case that's moving in Washington. Interesting. Hmm. I just think that the penchant of the Trump lawyers to delay the pressing election calendar and the fact that he's got other trials he has to, I mean, the New York (laughs) trial is going to go forward in March. That seems likely. He's got a couple of other cases going that he's involved in. You know, he's going to make the case. I've always believed this whole campaign was, you know, 50% or more about legal defense. and don't sleep on Georgia. Well, he's going to campaign on, on yeah, uh, Georgia, court TV. Georgia, Georgia. The, yeah, yeah. And Georgia's the one people understand. Well, it's also the most interesting case to me because think about Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney. She's already done the entire investigation through a, what's called a special grand jury. All the evidence is there. And what is Fonnie Willis's number one approach to these kind of cases? She does a lot of rap stars who get in trouble in Atlanta, other people. What is her approach? She does RICO prosecution, sprawling prosecution. So in terms of bringing a cast of characters for it, it might not just be Trump, Giuliani, others could be indicted in Georgia. And that's all in public view. That's not a grand jury like at the federal level. That's going to likely be all on camera. And that's something that really for television people, I'm living in this world only every day for the last year and a half, the images coming out of Georgia that could be more powerful in the testimony and the whole scene than anything we see in the black box of the D.C. federal courthouse. Right. It's made for television. It's out in the open with famous faces. So it's perfect for you guys. If it is this sprawling indictment that you anticipate, doesn't that also portend delays because you have so many players involved and it's a complex case? I mean, are we going to see that TV show coming to your screens anytime soon? I think so, because the, the investigation's done. It's, it, it's a strange, strange thing where it's not like they have to interview every witness again, because a lot of this has already been presented to a grand jury. They're picking new jurors now for a criminal grand jury. Um, but yeah, it's, I think you're right, David. The, all the Trump, I, I've interviewed the Trump lawyer down in Georgia, Drew Finley. Delay, 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 question the process at every turn. But, you know, it's, the election's more than a year away. I, something could definitely start. We can do a Republican convention from a courthouse or the holding cell. You know, we're innovators <laughs> in the Internet age. Uh, I've got one more topic as we, we take away. Dave, you have anything else on Don't this? Don't forget Biden. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's where I was going. Well, all this is happening. Generally, presidential elections are about the future and do we keep or fire whoever we have. It is my perception, and you guys can tell me I'm wrong, that Biden's getting worse. 
Um, we just had that NBC story on the, the use the kitty ladder at Air Force One, you know, because of some of his mobility issues. And I'm sympathetic to him. I got some of the same back stuff. But it it is, you know, the clock is ticking. Time is a resource in a presidential campaign. The wrong track is edging up, not down. Biden perception of the economy has not fixed. Uh, to me, it looks like Biden's political strength, even with all this Trump stuff, is ebbing a bit, not strengthening. No impact of like campaign year politics. Am I wrong? And if I were Biden's best friend, I think I'd sit him down and say, Joe, what are you thinking? There's still time. It's at the end of the window uh, if he didn't want to do this to open it up for a frantic and, and, and somewhat crazy but doable Democratic nomination process. I, I, uh, and I'm worried because if, if Trump does get the nomination, there's real risk now. So am I overreacting well, to this? My gut is that Biden is, is sliding. Well, there is, it is odd because, um, you know, he's had some good months here. I mean, the economy is improving. Inflation is coming down. Uh, real wages are going up. Uh, the, and sometimes these things take time to sink in. The, uh, you know, he, he, he is leading the world on this uh, Ukraine issue. I don't know how much that moves voters, but there, there are a lot of things that he can point to. Uh, you know, the infrastructure bill is now beginning to be implemented, and yet he seems frozen in the polling. I mean, it, you know, I don't know if he's ebbing. If I don't know if he's ebbing, but he's certainly not growing. And their bet is that they get Trump and that they can beat Trump or that Trump will help them beat whoever they get. It's a very complicated matrix because you've got these third-party candidates and so on. But, Bob, I don't see, you know, do you see any indication uh, that uh, Biden is somehow going to rethink this? No. I mean, everyone who, and David, you know a hundred times more people around him, but I've talked to people who are very close to him, and they say Biden's not rethinking this at all. And the fact they think the press is almost not capturing enough how much of a tough, older president he is and saying, this is what I'm doing, being very kind of prickly with some of his staff, uh, watching the polls, watching how his message plays out. I mean, this is an old school political operator, not just some kind of grandfather in the Oval Office. He's watching everything. He's well, tough on people. Yeah. And a guy who really wants the affirmation of being reelected, who really does believe he should be yes. reelected. You know, one thing I heard about him is interesting is uh, it reminded me of a story Woodward told me once when Woodward was interviewing Gerald Ford for this book, Shadow, years ago about Watergate. He was asking Ford about why did you pardon Nixon? And, and Ford was adamant there was no deal. But he looked at Woodward, Woodward recalled to me and said, Ford said to Woodward, I needed my own presidency. I needed my own presidency. And I think mm. about that a lot with Biden because President Biden, what we just spent a lot of time talking about Trump and Biden with his trillion dollar infrastructure, trillion dollar American rescue plan, you managing foreign policy, this, this shadow constantly over his presidency of Trump and January 6th and democracy. And I know based on our reporting that we've reported this, that Biden often wakes up, watches Morning Joe, and it's uh, as irritated as Trump was watching Morning Joe because they're talking about Trump. They're not talking about Biden. That affirmation point you made, David, is an important one. He wants the affirmation of history, of the press, and of what a reelection would mean. Yeah. Isn't that the most selfish goddamn thing, though? 
with the weaknesses he has and the, and if Trump is the nominee, the risk. What, what would happen? You guys know the Democratic world culturally. If Biden said tomorrow, you know, I've had a great term, but it's time for new blood. By the way, my dad thinks Biden ought to switch to VP again and mentor a younger one. So that's <laughs> the Joe Murphy solution that would solve all the problems. What would the Democrat leadership, you know, elite reaction be? If, would it be more joy than, than worry or more worry than joy if Biden did pull the plug? No, I think it would be mixed because there'd be a concern about the unknown. Right. But I do think, look, there's no doubt there's great worry about yeah. this. And, you know, there were stories this week and you and I, Mike, talked about them offline about, you know, the president now loading into the belly of Air Force One so he doesn't have to yeah. go up the stairs. And, you know, this is the big thing. This is the thing. There are lots of things, you know, uh, that you can change in 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 politics. Uh, Bob, you, you know, you, you say he's a tough old bird and he's a skilled old pal and all of that stuff but the the operative word is old and and that's what it seems to me you get into focus groups that's that's the first second and third thing you hear and that's the hard one to come up uh with an answer for i, I mean i've said this a million times but uh i could take this his record if he were 65 i could take his record and i would be really confident going into this uh, election that's not the that's not the question yeah, hell, if you were 70. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Everybody's gaming it out, though, right now. I mean, it, it, they have the expectation that Biden runs and continues to run. But if he suddenly, for let's say a health reason, decides not to run, it's going to be complicated with Vice President Harris. Does he endorse right. her? Does he stay out of it? That's a that's a politically loaded moment for Biden. And re- regardless of what he does on that front, Buttigieg, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, a lot of celebrities who are Democrats, who uh, there a lot of people are looking at this, and it could get very messy. There's no real playbook unless David heard something about how this could really be effective for the Democratic Party for him to walk away and not have an even bigger headache. Well, competition is good, though. A star would emerge. Campaigns do, campaigns generally do produce the best candidate. The question is whether there's enough time. You know, he, we are now getting to the point where the, the, it is very late uh, for a campaign, you know, if, we, if if Barack Obama had to run a, a six-month campaign instead of a two-year campaign, uh, I'm not sure that he would have been nominated. Uh, so, you know, I don't know that there's enough uh, time left. But, uh, you you know, you raise, you say that he'd have a Kamala Harris problem if he didn't run. He also has one if he does. I mean, it was interesting, the Nikki Haley answer i don't want a president kamala harris i think you're going to hear a lot more of that yeah in the coming I months i think this is going to become a major meme among i i, I don't think it's a problem that but more of a decision for biden because biden has to make he, she's been at his side so if he doesn't endorse her what does that say about his own decision making and yeah. his own record yeah but reagan didn't endorse bush the argument is you go earn it and yeah i love the guy and that's what Biden should do. Let, look, let her go. If she wins, she's a star. If she loses, she's a loser. And I think she'd probably lose. But, you know, let the market decide. I think the odds of Biden stepping away are very small. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to ask a different question is, how do, what do you do 
her, her numbers are bad. Um, there are a lot of questions about her. And the Republicans are going to be eager to elevate her to co-star status here right. on the theory next that— Next president. That, that she will be president at some point in the next four years. I think it's a really tough strategic question. You know, she's out a lot. She's re- she's everywhere. She went down to Florida on this uh, on this issue we were discussing at the beginning. She, you know, she's she's traveling on the abortion issue. She's, uh, you know, she's everywhere. But it, you know, it's not a it's not making a dent in people's impression of her as a potential president. I, I think this is going to be a, a, a running story here. She is ramping up, which is exactly the wrong thing to do, because she she's not good at it. So more of her doesn't solve the problem. I would let her go tour the naval installations in Fiji, you know, real hands-on stuff, spend a month or two. I would I'd hide her. Not to the point where hiding her is the story, but ramping her up to fix her just puts the dog food they don't like in the front window. It doesn't solve it. I don't think you can hide her, but I do think, as you suggest, you can give her really substantive things. And instead, she's sort of their ambassador on these cultural issues. And I'm not sure that that strengthens her. Yeah, I agree. No, the the substantive issue is thoughtful Axelrod talk for Locker in the Library. And I agree. I agree. Give her her something she can be good at, but don't make her a a brand face. Uh, It's trouble. Yeah. You know what else is going to be trouble if we don't get to these questions? That's true. Could be a riot. So let's play the music. If you have a question for the mailbag, just send it to us at Hacks on Tap World Headquarters, our sprawling facility. Just email it at hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate us while you're typing on Spotify, Apple Podcast, anywhere you receive the show. That helps that sneaky algorithm push us out to more new listeners. All right, what do we got? You know, Bob, Sarah asks a question that you as the co-author with Bob Woodward of the great book Peril would be interested in. Logistically, what would happen if Trump is sent to jail after winning the nomination? Is there any precedent for a president, presidential candidate having to exit the race after the nomination process is over? Would they replace him with someone else and how? It's a great question, but legally, a candidate can be in federal prison, a federal candidate, and still serve in federal office. I mean, there's no... There's nothing in our constitution that says someone who is in federal prison and can't simultaneously be president of the United States. Now, politically, that means that Republicans might have to make a decision at the convention to go in a different direction, but they'd probably be under intense pressure to not and to keep him there to make sure that when he gets in, he somehow deals with this, with his a self-pardon or, or some other kind of runaround. Which wouldn't apply to state convictions, but yes. That's right. He could be in jail in Georgia and not be able to pardon himself. I mean, can you imagine that we're talking about this? Yeah, it's amazing. And that this is actually within the realm of the, of what could realistically happen, highly unlikely. But man, is, are these uncharted waters? Yeah, I've actually been to the Aubrey State Prison in South Georgia, which is 100% Thunderdome. It would make an interesting uh interesting White House. And by the way, I think it did toughen up your character. I'm grateful for the years you spent there. Yeah, I, I did my nickel. It's made you wiser and more insightful. There are only two days, Axe, the day you go in, the day you go out. That's jail. <laughs> okay, 
But by the way, let me just just follow up with with Bob, though. What do Republicans that you're talking to, do they even contemplate the possibility that this guy could be convicted during the course of this campaign and that it's that could be a problem? No, I, I think one of the, the biggest story of the last 10 years is the acceptance of Republicans of this new reality in American democracy, that they have been confronted with a hundred different instances of Trump's alleged misconduct or fomenting an insurrection or questionable uh, actions as president or post-presidency. And they still continue to sense that he's still their standard bearer. He'd be better than a Democrat. You heard Nikki Haley. I don't want to have President Kamala Harris. And so there's no outrage. And there really is a sense of cynicism or at least disbelief or no trust towards established institutions in this country among those who on the center right to the right, uh, whether it's the Justice Department, the traditional news media, elected politicians of both parties. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I'm 37. People, and David, you've been on college campus now for a while. The kind of disconnect with so many people in their 20s, 30s, early 40s from American politics. They don't follow it. They don't care about it. And yes, there are many pockets who are very passionate on issues like gun control and uh, climate change. I'm not trying to paint everyone with the same brush, but the striking thing to me when I'm out there is how few people are paying attention. Yeah. No, no. The cynicism is the legacy of Trump uh, about everything. Well, and cynicism is the enemy of democracy. Uh, yeah. And uh, But this point you make, Bob, about young people, that is true globally. I mean, you see a, a disenchantment uh, among younger people from institutions, uh, from government, from democracy. Uh, and it is a really, really scary thing. And, uh, you know, what's disappointing is people who know better are fueling this fire and uh, I think history is going to really have a harsh judgment of them. Murphy, uh, someone named Mike, and I suspect I know who that is. <laughs> if a no-label candidate emerges and runs in 2024 presidential election, wouldn't that candidate siphon votes from both parties? Because we've been pretty strongly of a different view. Yes, the risk seems to be for Biden, but would it also be a reasonable alternative to some of the for some of the Republican voters who don't like what they are seeing, particularly Trump, who will most likely be the Republican candidate? Well, actually, other than the Trump thing, uh, we, we agree on most of this. You've finally come to see it my way. Net-net, some people will fall off each. That's the Whenever there's a huge wrong track election, you get often interest in a third party savior. You know, you had John Anderson was kind of the wine and cheese version of that in 1980, big wrong track election, uh, people dissatisfied with Carter. Then you had Ross Perot, more populist version. So the problem with no labels, and I wrote about this in my new Substack, which you can find, a uh, little essay. Yeah, it'll draw from each, but what it'll really do, and the reason it's materially good for Trump if he is the nominee and bad for Biden is it'll give people who cannot bring themselves, God bless them, to vote for Donald Trump, but don't like Biden. It gives them an escape valve, somewhere to go, and they get a medal for democracy while well, they do it to, quote, save the system by taking their vote 
and putting it in this kind of escrow account of failure. That is bad for Biden. There is no bonus prize in politics for your voters being happy and skipping to the polls. People who hold their nose and vote for Biden because they don't like Trump even more than they don't like Biden, that is a good vote for Biden. He needs votes like that. So giving people a permission structure to check out, net-net, much worse for Biden. So this thing is... uh, is a very bad idea. Now, in the future, maybe we have blockchain voting on your phone and it's it's a more fluid market. Maybe the third-party thing will start working. But in this election, uh, I know a lot of well-intentioned people are, who are part of this, but they are making a horrible, practical, political mistake. Yeah, we saw a little example of this when uh, Senator Murkowski o- over the weekend said she would vote for Joe Manchin over Biden or Trump. And I wonder if the in the privacy Costa of the voting booth, whether she would make that same decision if the choice were Biden and Trump. I think that the no labels is the variable. I'm glad the question was brought up because Joe Manchin, I'm told from a lot of people close to him, really does want to run for president. Uh, and, you know, he's he's been tempted to run for the Democratic nomination, but he knows that that's kind of not not something that he can make a convincing case that he's he's not going to ruin the democratic party but look a lot of people are in joe manchin's ear every day and saying you and larry hogan could run together on no labels and really do something uh you never know they they talk a lot about 1992 yes perot didn't win any states but he he got 19 percent um maybe something could happen there manchin's just the democrats have to find a way to deal with manchin i know it's not easy because he's not moving toward running for re-election from everything I hear. And I, I think you're right. If, if no labels has Manchin at the top of a ticket, maybe in the privacy of a voting booth, Murkowski or people like her make a calculation, let's go with Biden. If we really don't want Trump, that's the only way to do it. But a lot of people, I mean, I go back to 2016. I remember writing it again and again. Voters would say, I hate both of them. I hate both of them. I hate both. And so if you present that third option, there's a satisfaction that comes for a certain type of person in saying, I didn't mm-hmm. pick the Republican or the Democrat. And there's a fourth option, of course, on the, with the Cornell West and the Green Party, which offers those young voters who are alienated that you've been talking about a way out as well. You know, the other thing, just quickly, one, you got to get on all the ballots. Good luck. Hard, hard, designed to be hard. And second, in the history of these things, they tend to decline at the end because people finally say, you know what, I'm wasting my vote. So they're a pipe dream, but a dangerous one. But they're on the ballot, for example, in in Arizona. Right, where it could, in the Electoral College, have a real impact if they siphon. 11,000 vote margin in 2020. So, you know, and probably Kirsten Sinema running on that line for the U.S. Senate, uh, the incumbent But but the point being, that is an argument for why it affects the presidential, but it doesn't make the no-labels candidate president. That is the pipe dream, dangerous delusion part of it. And it could hurt Trump. Look, if Trump, if the uh, the Mormon Republicans and the cinema Democrats unite in Arizona, if Trump doesn't win Arizona, how does he win the presidency? Mm -hmm. Well, the question is whether it tips the thing to Trump. You're right that there 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 are complicated equations here, but Biden won 
overwhelmingly among voters who had negative opinions of both Trump and Biden. And so there's a larger pool of voters to flee him. And he's the incumbent now. So Right, uh, exactly. It's just like Bush and Perot. When you give people who want to protest vote somewhere to go, I mean, look, Biden is on track to lose. His great hope is horrible. Trump forces people to vote for him. And if you give him an escape valve, that formula is subverted. So speaking of subversion, we subverted the chance for me to get my question because we're running out of time here. So I will reserve my (laughs) answers for next week. But I have no reservations about Bob Costa, who's really one of the very best out there. Before we wrap this up, we have the Hacks on Tap book club. Go to hacksontap.com slash book club. See how creative we are? Bob, what's a political book, other than Peril, the magnificent tome you wrote with uh, the great Bob Woodward, that you recommend to our political junkie audience or anybody? There's so often a conversation in Washington about where the Republican Party might be moving. And there's fear, especially among Democrats, that it could be moving in an authoritarian, even fascist direction in the United States, and that this is the grim future they imagine for the Republican Party and potentially for the United States. But there's a a book I recently read that came out in 2022. It's called The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders by Ari Rabin Haft, who was one of Sanders' advisors in the uh, 2020 race. And to me, if you're a political junkie, it's worth reading for a day or two because it raises questions about whether we need to have a bigger political imagination about what's possible on the horizon, especially post-Biden in the Democratic Party. Sanders, of course, not going to run for president again. He's in his early 80s, uh, unlikely at least to run again. So what does that next generation look like in the Democratic Party? And to me, Sanders, this book makes me think Sanders is almost like a Goldwater type figure in the Democratic Party Hmm. in the sense that he's never won, but he changed the party and moving it to the left on issues like Medicare for all, poverty, minimum wage. And as much as we talk about the future of the Republican Party and it could move further to the right, the Obama coalition, so important, still in the Democratic Party. The Clinton years still have a, a hold over certain elements of the Democratic Party. But I think this book raises some questions, the fighting soul, about whether the Sanders wing, though not identified with him in a personal way, I don't think he's going to be an icon like a Che Guevara for the left in America, but he's going to be someone political people on the left are going to look to as someone who gave them a real bearing for the future of the Democratic Party. And if AOC ever becomes president, It will be in part because Sanders transformed politics in 2016 and 2020 inside the Democratic Party. This book takes you inside that campaign, which is for a political junkie, I think, worth a read. Did not see that coming. I'm going to go to hacksontap.com slash book club and click the Amazon button, and then we make three cents. Uh, But seriously, I think he could be a Goldwater figure. That is very astute, and I'm, I'm going to read this book. Bob Costa, it's great to have you, brother. Come back often, and we'll watch your great reporting with interest. Absolutely. There's nobody better at this than the Coster. I've known you since you were a puppy covering the GOP house. And uh, we're all proud that you're a listener and you're a guest and please come back. My honor. Thanks so much. Great to have you. And our our crack producer, Hannah McDonald, reminds us that we are about to go on a summer break, Murphy. Whoopee. Let's jump in a van. Let's go to the beach. Yeah, we've got a good union, so we're going to be off for a while, but uh, we will be back. And let me plug uh, again the Substack thing I'm having some fun with. 